you have your Bibles, please open to Ephesians chapter 1 with me. I will get there momentarily. Ephesians chapter 1. And I would begin by asking you a question to think about. If, if you ever read passages like this that we're going to look at this morning, are you ever tempted to think that certain truths are simply academic or intellectual? As if it's nice to be able to articulate in an eloquent way certain doctrines or certain perspectives and be able to argue for the right position on that, but don't really see the connection of what the purpose is for that scripture. We need to know that every aspect of divine revelation is given to us, not simply for our comprehension, but for our transformation. And this passage certainly is not an exception. Grasping the truth that is written here intellectually is not enough. It has to make its way into our hearts. It has to change us. It has to affect our lives. And one of the things I love so much about uh, Pastor Al Martin, and one of the things that he wrote, is that the end for which God has given us his truth is not so much for our comprehension as for our transformation. And it just sticks with me all the time when we read scripture that it's not just to know something, it's to go and change our lives. And that is so true. So in hearing the preaching, I trust that we are all pursuing life transformation through hearing with faith and trusting God's spirit to help us. Because we need to have our hearts stirred by this truth. We, we need it to be life-changing. We want to stand in awe of who God is and go forth from here, different people. So the message this morning is the reality and results of sovereign election. And I just want to say at the outset, I don't intend to look at this exhaustively throughout all scriptures. I really only want to lay a foundation and get to why it really matters. Because even if you're convinced of this, or if you're not convinced of it, but even if you are convinced of the reality of it, we need to be reminded of why it matters, of why it matters, and the implications that it has on our lives. So first of all, a definition, which is probably the most important part of how we think about this. And so here's the definition. Election is God's decree, whereby of his own free will, he has predestined certain people to salvation through Jesus Christ, to the praise of his glory. Election is God's decree, whereby of his own pleasure or free will, he has predestined certain people to salvation through Jesus Christ, to the praise of his glory. And it's really important that we define it as purely of God's free grace and love, because that's the reason we are Christians today. So let's read these verses here in Ephesians chapter 1. I'll read verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we, would be, we should be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So first of all, we want to look at the reality of, re of election. And what I would ask you first to notice is that God's choosing of us is the first thing mentioned on the list of spiritual blessings. We find here in Ephesians 1 that Paul is, is opening this glorious chapter and teaching us that God has blessed us with spiritual blessings, and then he begins numbering them and going through different ways that God has blessed us. But the first thing he says is that we are chosen in Christ. That's the first reality that he sets forth. And why is that? It's because of where, it's where it all begins. It's where it all begins. And all the other blessings that come from this fountain come because of this, that we are chosen. So sovereign election is perhaps 
the most praiseworthy element of our salvation because it's the beginning of it all. Nothing came before this because it's before the foundation of the world that God chose us. So one thing I want to be clear is that sovereign election is a glorious truth because it is our only hope of salvation. There are many, admittedly, who have a difficult time with this doctrine, and I certainly understand that. But if we read Scripture rightly and we believe it tells us that we were dead in sin, then we have to see, do we not, that election is the best friend of sinners. It is a positive choice by God to pluck us from the path of hell and to put us on the path to eternal life. And we must see it as a positive choice. It is wonderful news, brethren, that God chose to save some. And we need to have our perspective right that we don't see this, we don't, Foster the attitude of why didn't God save all, but we would see God as gracious for saving some. Because we're all sinners by default and by choice. And so we see the truth of the of well, a natural man hates this. He really does. He says, I can't believe in a God who would send us to hell and not allow us to choose. But brother, we can choose. We are volitional creatures. We can choose, but we cannot choose life because we are dead. We cannot choose life any more than a corpse can choose life as he is lowered into the ground. And so what we have to see is that God, the doctrine of God's sovereignty over salvation is, is what I believe, what is called a watershed issue for every church because it's not really a popular teaching. I mean, we, we recognize that, right? It's not a popular teaching. This isn't so much, it's not so much of a seeker-friendly subject. I think we would agree with that, right? I mean, you don't see churches posting about God's election on their website or on their church building. It's not the positive thinking bestseller to think that man is nothing and God is sovereign. We don't see that a lot. And so this really is something that that doesn't appeal to our flesh. It's It's not something that, puffs us up. It's actually rather humbling to us. It lays us bare in utter dependence upon God. And that's a hard sell to sinful man and to our secular culture and our humanistic society. So many churches, I feel, are tempted to avoid verses like this with explanations that defy the clear meaning or, or perhaps they just ignore it altogether. But brethren, that's, I mean, we could go for a walk and you see a bear down the trail. We could choose to ignore it for a certain amount of time, but there's a bear that maybe we should, maybe we should mention it. It's coming. We have, to, we have to recognize this is a part of Scripture and it must be acknowledged and dealt with and embraced. And so each church is going to have to face it and deal with it and choose how we're going to handle the doctrine because all, all Christians believe in election. It's just a question of how we are going to define it. Are we going to look at it as God's free and sovereign choice based solely upon his wisdom and pleasure? Or are we going to define it as a man-centered and say that God looked down through time and he saw that men would choose him and they would raise themselves from the dead and, and go into his salvation offer? What are we going to proclaim? That man is ultimately responsible? Or are we going to proclaim that God is the primary cause for anyone being saved? You see, it's, it's really God's glory that's at stake. And so, so often we see the problem is right here at the initiation of salvation, we really want to make it about ourselves. We want to be able to say that we turned to God and he responded because that plays into our pride. And man really wants to be the author of his own salvation. Even if he is saved and gladly saved, he wants to have the credit for it. And as that happens, our dependence upon God diminishes and we see ourselves as independent 
and perfectly capable. And so unless we're clear on our understanding of this, we're not going to be a people who really see ourselves as utterly dependent upon God. When, when man-centeredness dominates our thinking and, and it fills the crevices of our mind, it just overtakes us and all of the things that we see are going to become about us and humility and prayer become an afterthought. So some say, and I've heard, oh, it's, it's not a big deal. It's really not a big deal. You think God saved you. I think I chose God. Not a big deal. And I think we have to recognize that if, if the whole point of this and why so many authors of Scripture have made sure it's written and why one of the quotes that Mark read said it was written with an iron pen, if the whole point of it is to remind us that the glory belongs to God. All of it. All of it. It's God who saves. It's God who deserves the glory. For from him and to him and through him are all things, including your salvation. Now, I don't want to just make a straw man just to annihilate him. So let's just look at our own hearts, right? We have to look within us. It is sometimes very difficult to see God as the only being with total freedom. We think it's a bit unfair that salvation depends on God rather than us. And we have a hard time accepting the fact that we're not entirely free. We are influenced by countless circumstances, including our sin nature, including our sinful desires, including our environment, all of which are overflowing with sin. But God is the only one free of all external influences, and his actions are perfect and pure. And so the question becomes, brethren, that we need to see in our own hearts, is has seeing your dependence upon God made you love him more? Has it led you to love him, that you recognize you're a Christian because of him and not because of you? Because that's why natural man hates the election so passionately. Because if it's true, then God's ultimately in control and man's not. And we don't like that. We want the control. We want it. Man wants final say. Man wants to control his destiny. And for the most part, he thinks he does until something happens that forces him to recognize there's a God and he is in control. So brother, all I'm saying is that I think we would agree that if we were drowning in a sea of sin and there was a rope thrown to you and you were pulled safely to shore, it was because someone was on the other end of the rope. And you had to take hold of it by faith. But God's grace is why you had a rope to hold on to. And so here's, here's where I want to be balanced and biblical as I try to set this forth. And, and I just want to clarify something that goes parallel with this teaching. And it is this. God is a saving God. He is a saving God. He is one who delights to save sinners. And when God incarnate was walking this earth, he said all kinds of things that would compel us to come to him. He said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Repent and believe the gospel, he said, because the gospel is the good news of salvation. He said there's going to be more joy in heaven when one sinner repents than over 99 self-righteous people who don't think they need repentance. He never qualified his offer of salvation. Okay, so, so here's what I want to get to. In other words, we think sometimes that we have this picture in our minds of these poor, basically good people who are trying to get into heaven, and God's like this grungy old troll who only saves a couple people just because he promised to, and he's turning these people away who deserve heaven, but they're not chosen. That's a wrong picture. And so while we want to embrace the doctrine of election, I think we need to see from Scripture that all who want to come to Christ may come. You can read the passages, read through Scripture and read Isaiah where he says, turn to me all the ends of the earth and be saved. Where he says, God says this, 
all day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. You see, that sounds to me like a God who saves people. It sounds like a God who's willing to be found by those who seek him. And so we have to know that this is, this, this is one thing we need to know. That election has never stood in the way of one sinner who desired salvation. It has never stood in the way of one sinner who desired salvation because we have a picture of God as one who loves to save sinners and that should give us a lot of confidence. Okay, so let's, let's just deal with one of the hard truths. Here's an example of why I think this is a precious reality in Scripture. God says, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. And brethren, can we just all admit that that's a hard statement? That's a hard truth. But the question is, why didn't God hate both of them? Why would God love Jacob? He was a deceiver. He was a sinner. But he was loved. You see, that's... that's that's a hard statement that if we're honest, I think we all have to wrestle with that because it bothers us. But we need to ask the right question. Why was Jacob loved? Why would God love anyone? Because we've all sinned and we've all committed treason against God, seeking to get the, our, for ourselves the glory that he deserved. And you see how opposite we get in our thinking, where instead of, of thinking about how wonderful and marvelous God's grace was that he loved anyone, we get all twisted up and think about poor Esau. There he is, poor, wicked Esau. What a rotten deal for him. God hated him. How could God hate Esau? Isn't it, isn't it easier to get upset about that than to fall down and worship God who loved Jacob. And so why would God do what he did for Jacob, for Peter, for Paul, and countless other number of people who hated God? R.C. Sproul said, Is there any reason that a righteous God ought to be loving toward a creature who hates him and rebels constantly against his divine authority and holiness? So... Having the proper perspective and understanding, it helps our attitude go from seeing God who is unfair for saving some to seeing God as unfair and extremely gracious to save any. Now, just one more point on this before we move on, and it's this. Election cannot be separated from Jesus Christ. Look down at the text. He says, just as he chose us in him. The ESV omits who that is, but it's Christ. The him is our savior. It was in Christ that God chose to save us from eternity past. Our savior was set forth from the, for the sacrifice of you and I. And on the hill outside of Jerusalem, when they nailed his body to the tree, your sins were imputed to him then. Because before the foundation of the world, God had in mind to save you. And the cross is what was necessary. And we are not separated. No one comes to Christ. No one comes to God outside of Christ. And so to receive the blessings, we come to the cross. And all the spiritual blessings are found in the person of Jesus. Sometimes you drive through little rural towns and you see in the rising up in the middle of the town somewhere a big water tower, right? These are storehouses of water and whoever lives in these towers, in the tower, whoever lives in these towns are dependent upon these water towers for the pressurization and the water system. So it's full of water stored up pressurizing and sending out water to the homes and businesses. And I, I think of that picture as a similar way that God has stored up 
every one of the spiritual blessings in one place, in one person, Jesus Christ. And when we are connected with him through faith, we have been connected to all the supplies of grace and all of the spiritual blessings. So no one is saved apart from Christ. But brethren, let's think about how it is that we come to him. See, I think there's times that we really need to think about how our, how our salvation actually came about, right? Of course, there was repentance and faith in the per- person and work of Jesus Christ. But how? How did that come about? Why did we repent and believe? Was it because we woke up one day and decided this is a good day to repent and believe? What really opened our eyes? What really changed us? It's only because before the foundation of the world, God set his love upon you. Because, see, we can trace the works of God throughout history, and we can see his purpose unfolding century after century. We can see him saving people and sanctifying them, and we trace it back to God's grace. God was gracious to his people. But we don't stop there. We have to ask, why? Why was he gracious? We get to the cross, and we recognize that's how he was gracious. That's how he could be gracious to a sinful people. But why? Why? Why was that the case? And so we keep going back further through the prophets, through the law, back to Genesis 1. No answer. Back before the foundation of the world. And in the last book of the Bible, we find the primary cause for why anyone was saved. And we see the first cause in the chain of events which will consummate in our glorification. Namely, that the Lamb of God has a book. The Lamb of God has a book in which are written the names for all of those for whom he would die. And those names were written before the foundation of the world. And so, why would God save anyone? Well, it says here in verse 6, it's to the praise of his glorious grace. That's why. And we have to see that it's in his perfect wisdom and mercy. Sheer grace is why he chose to save you. And so I think we have to recognize that election is the furthest we can go back. We can't go back any farther to ask why God would save people. The curtain is drawn there, and we rest in that. It's not because you are smarter or more gifted or more important or dark-skinned or blonde-haired or left-handed or any other thing. It's because God chose to save you. And in Deuteronomy we read, he loves you because he loves you. Amen? Now, let's get to the results of election. We see the reality, but we have to recognize that there are results of this and ask the question, what difference does it make in your life? Because we can't be those who hear truth time and time again and remain unchanged by it. We want it to affect us. We want this truth to filter through our brains and make its way into our everyday lives where we live and work and we understand these things have an impact upon us. So there are many results, but today I just want to give us three, all right? The first one is obviously humility. Humility. One of the first fruits of truly comprehending something of God's electing love is a profound sense of humility. And I don't think I need to reinforce the fact that man is naturally proud. And none of us gathered here this morning have been fully emptied of the pride that we carry. But lost people especially, they they stumble over themselves trying to get to the platform to proclaim their excellence to the whole world, right? I mean, you see that all over the news and politics and social media where all they can do is be proud of who they are. That's the new thing. We want to be proud of who we are. But what of us this morning? Here we are, reminded of the magnificent blessings that we have received Reminded that we are the redeemed ones. Reminded that we are the chosen race. Reminded that we are blessed above all else to know God and to be possessors of eternal life. And so if we are those chosen people, are we proud? Do we have pride that 
Maybe the whole world's going to hell, but at least we have the answer and we sit comfortably. Brethren, we're Christians this morning, yes, but here's the thing. We didn't make ourselves Christians. What are we going to boast in? What are we proud of? And I would just ask you to examine your heart. I'm not saying these things in a condemning way, but sometimes we're tempted to be proud that we know certain truths of the Scripture. So we know a certain doctrine, so now we're proud. Or we've been given a couple of spiritual gifts. And so we exercise them in pride. I mean, what did we bring to God that we would be so delighted with ourselves? A proud Christian? It should not be, it should not be said of any of us. To describe anyone who is washed with the blood of Christ. And so I just ask you, as the first fruit, has this made you a humble person? Because there's a difference between knowing about election intellectually and knowing it experientially. If we didn't know it in our minds, like it's, it's some theological sledgehammer that we go around beating up other Christians because they don't agree with it or don't understand it. That's not what it's for. If we recognize this, we're going to use that sledgehammer to work on our own pride. But if we recognize this, God will help us mortify our remaining sinfulness. And so one thing we can, one test we can give ourselves as to whether we have truly come to know this and have it affect us is has it produced humility in our lives? Have we become so aware of God's mercy towards us that we recognize we were on the eternal, the path to eternal hell, lifetime upon lifetime upon lifetime upon lifetime of suffering and torment, and God saved us. I mean, are there times that you tremble in humility and gratitude? You see, this has to have an effect on us, right? This has to change our perspective. Just to contrast that to natural man's view of God, natural man hates God who is sovereign. And you can test this out. Go tell a lost person that he's sick and he needs to add Jesus to his life. Tell him that he has a problem, but that a prayer will take care of it. And you know what you're going to find? You're going to find a happy convert. Tell him he's dead in sin and his only hope is to go home and cry out to God for mercy to save his soul, and he will hate that message. He'll hate it. Because we don't like to hear Jesus say, you didn't choose me, I chose you. So there's, there, is a, there is an objection to this reality, and it's that God is not fair. Right? But as we've discussed, we have to see that as, I mean, that's a legitimate objection. It isn't fair. It isn't fair that God would save me. It's not fair that he would save you. It isn't fair that he would forgive a single sinner who rebelled against his holy will and his grace that was displayed through Jesus Christ. How could God save anyone when we read their in Ezekiel, that the soul who sins shall die. And we read of Adam being told, you eat of the tree, you're going to die. And he was met with grace and a promise of salvation rather than immediate and eternal death. See, this must humble us because we were just as eligible for hell as anyone else, and yet God has had mercy on our souls. I mean, do you understand why this, maybe more than any other, is a spotlight on man's soul? It just exposes everything that's in there as, oh, we don't like that. And yet, God needs to expose that in order to humble us. 
so that we are not natural anymore in how we see God. We are not those who see God indebted to us. We see God as a God who had mercy. So what can we say? That were it not for the grace of God, I would be the most vile sinner. And maybe I would have some competition for that from some of you. But God had mercy. And as Paul said, where then is boasting? Where is boasting? So we don't look down our noses at lost people as the Pharisees did or at other people who may struggle with this or disagree with it. We humbly and boldly show them the Savior. And so humility is the first fruit. And then we recognize that there is some level of security. And I say some level because we have to recognize that if there's any level of security, there is complete security. This, this has to be a comfort to God people, God's people. Because I think there are many born-again, Christ-loving people who are so concerned to live for God that they spend much of their days and much of their energy focused on themselves, wondering if they're saved. And wondering if they're going to make it through all the hardships. Wondering if they're going to endure the race. Are they going to be able to break the tape? Or are they going to fall short? And so, it is to those who struggle in this way that we need to be clear. God's not going to be deterred. His plan is not going to be thwarted. He is, one, he is the one who Peter said is guarding us and we can trust him. Now, I don't want to give false security to anybody who's living a life of sin and not devoted to Christ. That's not the point. There's people always look for ways to be affirmed in their sin. But God wants his people to know these things. That's why he's inspired these words. And I think it might be helpful to us to recognize that election is not general, but it is specific. Do you see that God chose you as an individual? Not just as a large group of people, but as an individual, God wrote your name in the book of life. Do you find comfort in that? Do you, do you see that as something that, that I, mean, I mean, do we take time to meditate upon that reality? That before the foundation of the world, God loved you as an individual and chose you in Christ, that you would hear the gospel, that you would sense your need of salvation, that you would repent of your sin, that you would call upon Christ and believe upon him. All that's personal. He didn't elect America or Germany or China or smart people. He chose you. He chose you. And so it's one thing, is it not, to look at a mass of humanity and say, God chose us. And it's quite another to say, with, with all of your sin and unworthiness, and still say, my name is written in the, life, in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. My name is written there. And so the reason this gives us security is that we know it's not some cold-hearted truth. It's precious and it's personal. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us. In love. That's the motivation. That you were loved by God. Before the foundation of the world, when God set you aside from the rest of humanity, it was not some whimsical decision as if he was blindfolded and just picking random people who would come into his glory. That is not the case. His love is what drew you to himself. And so I was telling my kids on the way here, the reason that we are Christians today is because God has always loved us. Before the sun was burning, God loved us and set us aside for himself. No wonder Jesus said to his disciples, abide in my love. So what, just, just quickly to reaffirm this, the other way that this brings us comfort and security is that the Trinity cannot be broken. 
You're here this morning and dealing with insecurity, perhaps, concerning your salvation. I, I, I hope this will help you. Just, just think through. Think through. God the Father set you apart, chosen for salvation before the foundation of the world. God the Son sent to die for a specific people, a people whom the Father had given him. His blood was shed. His life was laid down. His words, it is finished. His body committed to the grave and three days later raised in glory, ascended to on high, and the Spirit is sent to apply that work of redemption. Now let me ask you, where is that going to break apart? You see, it's, it, would the Father decree something that the Son would refuse to do? Would the Spirit choose not to apply that blood to certain people? The Trinity can't be broken. And so in our times of temptation, in times of insecurity, we have to recognize that we're thinking that possibly there's a civil war coming in the Godhead. Brethren, it's, we're safe in the arms of Christ because our salvation is a Trinitarian salvation. So I'd encourage you, hold fast, fight the good fight, because that's what we're told. We need to hold fast, we need to press on, we need to run the race, all the while knowing that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And you need to know that should all the hordes of hell and all the temptations and trial and everything come against you, nothing can rip you from the hands of the Son of God who died for you. Nothing. So, Humility, security, and finally, evangelistic success. Brethren, think, think with success. Evangelistic success is a fruit of the doctrine of election. Now, here we have something to think about. If God has chosen us, if God has chosen many to be saved, then we can share the gospel with a great deal of, of confidence because we know that in some way or another, God is going to save his people. And we're going to see evangelistic success. Now, just be honest. Is that your mindset? Is that our mindset as a church? I mean, do we see God who is actively seeking and saving the lost now? Or was it just when Jesus walked the earth? Because here's the reality. The doctrine of election has often caused people to look at God as some kind of gringe, as I said before. He's this troll who doesn't want to save anybody, but he's going to save a few because he promised to. It, It has made certain people think that way. And so we have to almost twist God's arm to see him save anyone. That's not the case. That's not the God that we read of in the Word. And you're going to find, if you read through the Scriptures, that God is far more willing to save than you can imagine. And so here's where we put this to the test. Has this transformed you? Or has it simply entered your mind and stayed there like some kind of argument to be used later? God's election ensures that we're going to see people saved. Do you believe that? throughout your week, or just when you read old books or come into conversation that this topic comes up, right? I mean, do you believe it when you pray for the lost or you share the gospel with with other people like we talked about this morning? Because this is going to give us a motivation for proclamation of the good news, right? I mean, we just have to think. God decreed to save sinners, he, he's not going to act on our preferred timeline most of the time, but he's going to save people. He's decreed it, and he's going to accomplish it as part of the way he's going to accomplish it is through you and I opening our mouths and proclaiming the gospel, right? I mean, all we have to do is look at Nineveh. Nineveh was spared for a time. Nineveh was spared, but Jonah had to go preach. And so here's, here's, here's the thing. We need to press upon people their need to repent and believe because it's the only way to be saved. But knowing this truth is going to help us share the gospel with optimism rather than fatalism because we know something that they don't. Namely, that God has in love predestined a myriad of people to salvation, to the praise of his glory. A myriad of people. And so does this 
doctrine change your mindset and change your life as it should? Are you an optimistic evangelist? Or are you fatalistic in your apprehension of what the gospel is able to do? Because it's easy to think, I admit, it's very easy to think in our day, in our land, that God's really only saving a few people in a few faithful churches. Maybe somewhere over in another country he's saving a lot of people, but not right here, right now. Because it's, we just don't see it. Thankfully, he does save people. But maybe we're not proclaiming the gospel as we should because we don't believe it's all that effective. And we're just, we just see people as too hard, too, too far gone, too sinful, and we don't proclaim the gospel because we don't believe it is effective. But brethren, we've got to proclaim it. We've got to proclaim it. This has to make a difference. We want to be a people who proclaim it in hopeful expectation. Because you can go there and read Revelation 9, that Christ is going to save people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And we recognize those people are not going to turn to God by seeing a tree or a river or a mountain. They're going to come to him because someone preached the gospel to them. That's how. And so we want to see this, that the gospel is going to be successful because God has ordained that many will hear and believe. That's, we are ambassadors. We are ambassadors of the greatest message. And we have to take this and make a, make, have it make us a confident people. Have it make us an outward-focused people. But we see past the walls of this church and we see the lost and we see them as in need of salvation and we're the ambassadors sent by God. Now, <clears throat> one broad application and one close to home and we'll be done. Brethren, <clears throat> we believe God saves. And so that's why we send out missionaries who are called and qualified. And when we do that, we're going to eventually hear salvation springing up in that place. How many of you planted a garden this spring and didn't expect anything to grow? Right? We send these people out so that they, we can anticipate souls being added to the kingdom because they're going to be faithful and they're going to take this gospel to these people whom God will save. And so this doctrine alone, aside from all other, many other reasons, but this is enough to motivate and compel a person to a life of missions. Because God's going to save people from every corner of the earth, in every rotten and most dangerous place. God says, I have my people there. Don't leave. Don't be afraid. I have my people there. And this is something that we need to be aware of. And so maybe, would God, God, maybe God would use this as a reminder to you, as a confirmation that you should go somewhere and proclaim freedom to the captives and the favorable year of the Lord. Because just remember this, missionaries are not Navy SEAL Christians. You know what a missionary is? A missionary is somebody who believes God. Someone who believes God is with them. And they believe they have a message. And they believe that message is going to be effective and to save people. And so they're, they're saying, we're going after the captives. We're going after the captives because God's going to save his people. And so we send out the Jabellos and we support Emily. Whoever it is, we send them with anticipation. So evangelism or missions, it is a sacrifice for sure. But it is not primarily a sacrifice. It is a gift. It is an opportunity to see God fulfill his promise and reach down right in front of you and recreate a person. And you get to see that. You get to be a part of that. So this is what will pry some of us out of our comfortable lifestyle and throw us into some jungle somewhere or some frozen tundra of some distant place where we know that there are poor souls who are going to be saved because God has his people there, and we have a message, and we know that they're going to be saved eventually. Maybe this could even create optimistic, reformed Baptist missionaries. How about that? Optimistic Baptist missionaries. There we go. So the question is, the question is for us, <clears throat> what are we going to do? What, what are you going to do? Are you going to write tracks? 
Are you going to hand out literature? Are you going to go to your neighbors? Are you going to go to your friends? Are you going to go to the nations? Closer home. That was the broad application. I want to apply this closer home. Brethren, many of us have children. Some are believing. Some have thus far rejected the faith. And some are too young to comprehend it. As it relates to what I have said this morning, the question that we need to answer is this. With whom would you rather have your loved one's salvation depend on? Their own sinful hearts? Before a God who is rich in mercy. I have children who need to be saved. And I'm trusting that God is rich in mercy, brethren. He's going to save. He's going to save. I'm not a Presbyterian. I'm not going to baptize my children. But I'm trusting. I'm trusting God who says, let the little children come to me. Trusting in a God is just, he says, you were dead in sins, but I had mercy. I'm trusting in God who says, don't be afraid. I have people in that city. They're going to be my people. So when it comes to your children, my friends, pray desperately and preach constantly and plead with them to go to Christ. Be encouraging of their progression and expect to one day see the gospel bear fruit. This is how we find hope and even optimism concerning the salvation of our children because God placed them in our homes where they can be saturated with gospel truth. And so when God gives us these precious little ones, we take it very seriously to train them and teach them the gospel. And I would submit that we can have great reason to hope and even expect God to save them. Not because we know the mind of God, but because we see that he's placed them in our homes. And they can hear the gospel and they can go to Christ. I would say to young people, Scripture says that Jesus Christ, the King of glory, redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And you can go to him right now. It doesn't have to wait till you're older, till you understand more. Anyone and everyone can call out to Christ now and he will forgive you. And so I want to just close by addressing the elephant in the room that's probably here. The, uh, the question inevitably comes, how do we know if we're elect for salvation? I mean, suppose this whole message backfires, and all you can think about is, what if I'm not, or what if my loved one is not elect? And the answer from Scripture is that we are never told who is and who is not elect. The only concern of Scripture is Jesus Christ. The only concern is have you come to him. The only concern of Scripture is that have you placed your faith in him, knowing that you cannot be saved by your own works, only by faith in his work. And so the question is, is he precious to you, or do you love him? Because we're not encouraged to ask Certainly never given the answer to the question, am I elect? And so for anyone stumbling over this doctrine, that's not the issue. The issue is, have you come to Jesus as the Savior of your soul? And I would say this very directly to everyone here, that you can be assured, you can be assured that nothing stands in your way to come to him except for your own sin 
and your own pride. Nothing stands in the way. You have a willing Savior. Come, lay it down and come to him. Be done with the sin, be done with excuses, be done hiding behind godly parents or hypocritical religious activities. Don't be the person that pacifies your conscience by saying you're too young or too old or too sinful or too anything. You're all invited to the celestial city, but you must come by the way of the narrow gate. And we just need to be reminded of how our Savior dealt with sinners such as ourselves, right? He invited thirsty sinners. He invited willing sinners. He invited heavy-laden sinners. He invited lost and hateful sinners. He invited adulterous sinners. He even saved the chief of sinners. All of these people were saved by coming to Christ with no thought of whether or not they could come. They just came, and Christ forgave them. So, God's choosing to save sinners is a reality in Scripture that we want to embrace and to worship God for. But I also want us to see that it has major implications and it will affect our lives. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we worship you. For many things, and this morning we worship you, that you are a God who is rich in mercy, and a God who saves, a God who humbles us, a God who is, in whose hands we are secure, and in whose mercy we can hope that we will see a bounty of souls come forth. And I pray, God, that whatever truth was spoken here today, that you would seal it to our hearts. Lord, if I have spoken in error, please forgive me and remove it from our minds. But I pray, God, that your word would be effective to accomplish its purpose this morning. In Christ's name.